calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 2. Chalet was one of those vague European notions, like history and $2 coins and a working healthcare system, that Sal had never quite wrapped her head around, but she felt pretty sure the place where they stopped for the night qualified. It was Swiss, which was on the short list of things Sal was certain defined a chalet. And it was Swank, which was the only other item on the list. Manchu didn't mention the name of the friend in whose six guest bedrooms they were crashing on the way to Liechtenstein. For all Sal knew, he'd just chosen a dark house at random and happened to find a key under the welcome mat. But he kept his cards close to the vest on this one, and she didn't pry. Especially when the other option was yet another night in the van. Sal had felt a kind of double consciousness ever since the mine. On the one hand, here they were, eating dinner in the same room. Asante talking with Manchu and Grace, Liam with Francis, as if Francis's legs weren't snakes and London wasn't half transformed into something else. And at the same time, she was down in the mine shaft, her hair petrifying, strands of salt reaching in and in. She fell back there each time she turned her head and her ponytail did not sweep against her neck. The ends of her hair felt jagged and sharp. That had to be an illusion. This was just a haircut, damn it. A magical, nearly fatal haircut. She drank wine, and then she drank more wine. How's Perry? She hadn't worked up the nerve to ask until now. That is, she still didn't have the nerve, but wine could stand in place of nerve. And asking about her brother was a way out of the dark and the salt. She relaxed when Asante said, He's back in London, minding the fort, and he's doing well. I was worried about how the influx of magic would affect him. When Aaron merged his sword with your brothers, neither of them expected the world to fall apart so fast in quite this way. But he seems fine. Sal pretended not to hear the stress Asante placed on seams or the unspoken so far. 
But the changing conditions affect all magic everywhere. The old powers, as well as the new, arcane and mundane alike. I believe that's why the maitres called this meeting. We all have a mutual interest. Liam frowned. I don't trust the maitres. Grace flipped a page in her book. You just don't like being eaten by giant plants. No, he said. You're right. I most certainly do not, and rather think that proves my point. She turned you to stone, I'll have you remember. I'm used to it. And anyway, the plant only ate you. It's not as if you were actually digested. It was getting there. I haven't been able to look at kale since. <laughs> what a hardship. Do you have any idea how much kale I eat, or rather, used to eat? Manchu refilled his snifter of cognac at the bar. I don't like this either. We don't know who else will be there, or what the maitress plans, but we will be at the market, under her protection and her peace. Which was so effective in the past, like that one time Mr. Norse almost stole Sal's brain, or the other time when someone tried to call her Grace. We exiled Mr. Norse to the demon realm, Asante pointed out, and the members of the network who did the actual brain stealing are mostly dead. Besides, each of those cases was at an actual market. The market goers spend their year preparing for any circumvention of market rules they wish to try. This is a sudden surprise affair. Everyone will be caught off guard. With luck, this will reduce the risk of uh, surprises. Unless she decides to use the occasion to declare open season on book burners. Asante set down her glass. Are we using that term for ourselves now? Liam shrugged. Times change. I am not a part of the society anymore, Liam, and neither, by most reasonable definitions, are you. That didn't settle him, but then Asante didn't mean to. Sal had been with Team 3 long enough to tell when Asante set out to needle someone. She grew very correct and couched her voice in a tone easily confused for kind. Of course, Liam had been with Team 3 even longer than Sal, so either he ignored the warning signs or played into them, enjoying how it felt to be home again. The appointed rebel, loving by pushing back. It was almost like old times. She smelled salt. And when she closed her eyes, she remembered how dark it had been underground. Could the people who'd been changed to statues see down there, or did they swim through black on black forever? Either way, they'd all burned now. She excused herself and climbed the stairs to bed. The tips of her hair still felt sharp against her skin. She was imagining things. She wished she could shut off her brain. She sat cross-legged on her bed with the door closed and her shoes off, while outside the sky deepened and the less shy stars came out. She missed her brother. Someone knocked on her door once. Come in, Grace. Grace closed the door behind her, but did not move into the room. She propped herself against the door as if she expected a mob to storm it from the other side. How did you know it was me? I didn't hear any footsteps, and the others would have knocked more than once. Grace shrugged and let the silence run. Sal felt it well up over her head and began to drown. You're pushing yourself too hard, Grace said at last when the silence threatened to drown them both. She left the door and approached Sal's bed. She moved no faster than any normal human, but she seemed to grow as she neared. So step by step, she doubled taking up a section of the world more vast than her body. When she sat down on the bed beside Sal, she was the size of a woman again, and tense. 
The nails of her right hand scraped up her pants leg, and her fingers tightened to a fist. And someone who wasn't Grace, that was the equivalent of throwing plates. It's not just this morning getting to you, it's everything. I've watched it since Rome. You can talk to me if you want. Her next words ran over themselves. They came out so fast. Or not. I mean, you don't have to. I know how that is. I spent a long time not being able to talk to anyone. And it was good for me up to a point, but it doesn't stay good. And you're not alone like I thought I was. Grace drew in a breath and held it, trembling on the edge of something larger than either of them wanted to admit. And in that pause, Sal realized she was taking careful inventory of Grace of the angle of her head, of the impression she made on the mattress that told Sal how there she was, how real and close. Whatever held Grace back gave way. And if you don't want to talk, but you want company, if you just want somebody here, I can do that too. She set her hand over Sal's on the bed, and her fingers slid through hers. It felt so simple and so right. The touch itself could fix, well, not everything, but so much. Sal tightened her fingers to grip Grace's between them. She could pull her in, inhale her, swallow her by reflex. She'd been lost and sun-blind in the desert. Any water would do. She was a throbbing mess of need. Why shouldn't she let that need carry her? She had leaned close without noticing had caught her hand around Grace's ribs without noticing. She could have lived a hundred lives in that one night without noticing. Grace must have felt her pause because she stilled and stood slowly. So if Sal wanted, she could close her hands and stop her, pull her down to the bed, to her mouth. Sal's hands slid from her body like sand or salt. I'm sorry, Grace said. I didn't mean to make things worse. And before Sal could apologize or explain, she was gone. They met the next morning at dawn. Sal had slept a kind of sleep that left her feeling like she hadn't slept at all. Around the table, the others looked the same. Tired, determined, haunted. Manchu took the vote. Do we go to the matress? Asante, full-voiced as expected, answered, yes. Francis. Of course, Grace, a nod. Liam grimaced, stood, ran a hand through the stubble of his hair, flared his lats and tensed his arms and did something weird with his jaw. And at last, sure. Manchu's nod was not quite Grace's nod, but close. Everyone was looking at Sal as if her vote made any difference. And as they kept looking, she realized that it did. They had left the society in the Vatican behind. They were walking their own road, all alone, together. No orders, no practices, no rights or hierarchies or offices or teams. Friends. She said yes. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, 
floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Four. Michelle's two visits to the market had not left her looking forward to a third, but the other people, loosely speaking, in attendance on her last visits at least seemed to be having a good time. Magicians haggling over drinks with monsters, rivals relaxed in the maitress's pledge of safety. This time, everyone in the market's village square seemed as unsettled as she'd felt on that first visit. Doesn't it seem different to you? Grace narrowed her eyes at the crowd. The guys with the wolf pelts look the same. They wear wolf pelts and always look like they're on a three-wine bottle hangover. They didn't have far down to go. But now, everyone else looks to be on their level. Sal nodded toward a three-eyed woman she'd last seen the previous market, drinking in a hot tub with identical triplets. Each of her eyes now had a thousand-yard stare. She spotted the triplets at the far corner of the square in front of the maitress's citadel, speaking to no one, standing, holding hands in a circle. Is it just me, or is this place more crowded than usual? Hey, Liam said. I recognize that guy from China. He waved, and whoever it was shied off into the crowd of glaring faces. Oh, must not have seen me. Grace crossed her arms. Or he's ignoring you. We had a great time, him and me. He showed me all around the place. After which you helped the network break in and wreck it. Christina wouldn't have caused any trouble if you hadn't led the Chinese military in after us. That's not what happened, and anyway, I didn't lead them. If Grace was sore from their conversation, call it a conversation, in Sal's room the night before, she hadn't let on. Though Sal had a hard time telling the difference between Grace angry and Grace frustrated and Grace keeping her own counsel. Sal felt lousy, and there was no way around it but through. Grace deserved better. 
I do remember some of these people from the bazaar. The woman with the tiger head and those birds. Asante had said very little since they had walked, and in Francis's case, wheeled, up the winding road and found this crowd milling before the maitress's gates. Her gaze moved like a searchlight, ponderous and direct, recording each curiosity for later reference. Fascinating, she said. There's so much to learn. Manchu returned from a conversation with a robed figure who had no visible face. They got the same note. I imagine the matress will explain herself when she's ready. I'll ask the wolf guys if they know what's up, Sal said and started toward them. From behind, Liam called, are you sure about that? I don't hear any better ideas. She turned to catch his reaction, but when she did, she found Grace behind her. Oh, hi. Hi yourself, Grace said. Mind company? Sal should have said a lot more than no, but that was all she could manage. What words were there for the sudden, tight, warm feeling that came from seeing Grace in front of her, unexpectedly? Whatever terms she might have found if she looked deeply, she set them aside and focused on the wolf guys. Sal had always hated the special awkwardness associated with approaching someone she knew by sight but had never met. Looming magical apocalypse really should have made that sort of thing feel easier by comparison, but awkward silences and Sal's experience were pretty damn durable. One of the hidden benefits of being a cop had been the ability to start most official conversations with Sal Brooks, NYPD. This time she went with, hi, I'm Sal. Do you know what's going on here? The wolf guy she'd addressed did not seem to notice. He squatted, draped in fur, napping an edge on a stone knife. Sal tried again. Excuse me. He looked up. His eyes were large and wild and yellow-gray, not unkind, and yet not kind at all. When he opened his mouth, she saw long, curved teeth and a long, thin tongue. Pardon, Brother Gerard, said a woman's voice nearby. She was tall and dark and slim and heavily tattooed, her gaze a challenge, her eyes not quite human. He has pledged not to use the human tongue. But you are known to us, Sal Brooks. And Grace Chen? Your kind have been no friends to the brothers and sisters. We're not with the society anymore, Sal said. They'd said it enough among themselves, but saying so in the open still felt wrong. We're trying to help. Do you know what the matress wants? Do not ask reasons of the stars or the matress, she said as if remembering a proverb. Both make their will clear through work. Have you truly left the fold? Something like that, Sal said. Then perhaps one day you will find your place among the wolves, or the wolves will find you. Her smile seemed playful, but then some wild things played with her food. We know no more than you. A cry summons the brothers and sisters from the high places. It is not our time to wear the skins. Oh, don't listen to them, advised a pampered and familiar voice behind her. It's all smell words and howls and what music they make with that crew. Well, I'd never dream of questioning the maitress's guest list. I can think of a number of people this market would be better off without. Sal tensed. In the years since Sal had joined the weird parallel world of magic and books and book burners, she'd met good people and weird people. She'd met evil people, too. People with grand designs who made vast bargains with powers they could barely comprehend, 
willing to risk everything for might, so long as the everything they risked belonged to someone else. She'd met torturers and murderers and demons by the score. And she'd met Pavel Engstrom. Pavel, now wearing a fawn-colored cashmere turtleneck, a thick scarf, horn-rimmed glasses with lenses she'd have laid a hundred bucks corrected nothing, pipe cleaner skinny pants, and a coat with an ermine collar was not any kind of good person. Set him against the true evils Sal had known, monomaniacs like Christina or Mr. Norse, eschatological horrors like Hannah the Monster Archangel or the Demon Called the Hand, or even mortal monsters like Balloon and Stretch who'd used their powers as Team 2 agents to torture and murder countless innocents, including Sal, and he'd also come up wanting. Was he evil? Bad, certainly. He was cruel and greedy and petty and vicious. He was all flex, no muscle. But he could hire muscle. The last time she'd met him, he'd been trying to put a collar on Grace for his personal collection. Sal had been angry often in her life, though she tried not to let anger become a habit. Anger was bad mental hygiene, especially if you carried a gun. She'd not thought of Pavel since the last market, since she'd sent him on his way. There were so many things in the world more deserving of her attention. Mushrooms, for example. Rotting logs. Slugs. So it felt strange to see him and realize that somewhere in the back of her mind, she had spent the intervening months growing ever more furious. She wanted to put her fist through his face. Pavel, I don't see your bear. Did your parents take it away? He sneered. One of the two women behind him laughed. They were twins, blonde and long. And though Sal had mistaken them for entourage or hangers-on at first glance, on second, she saw their clothes were at least as fine as Pavel's. One in a black sweater and black jacket over riding pants and boots, the other wearing flowing trousers under a long fur-collared coat. You always did have such colorful friends, Pavel, said the one in the furs. They looked down on Sal. Some of that was the fact that these women had two inches on her even without their heels, but Sal had a feeling they could have looked down on her if she were eight feet tall. Delightful woman. How on earth did you know about the mummy and the bear? Lucky guess, Sal said and guessed again. Your brother started trouble last time. Are you going to keep him under control? Puffle's never been under anyone's control, said the woman in fur. Even his own. Pavel had paled, and he faked a nonchalant laugh. Detective Brooks, please ignore Ingrid. The rest of us do. And this is my other sister, Gala. The woman in the riding pants reviewed them. Her eyes widened when they settled on Grace. Pavel, is this the one you were telling us about? I can see why you felt such a yen for her. Just keep walking. Sal tried to sound in control, but anger roughed the edge of her voice. All of you. You see, Pavel said to his sisters. Primitive, violence not quite restrained. You can't wait to, how would you say, take a swing at me, Detective Brooks? Do it. You might as well prove you don't belong here. This is all your lot's fault, anyway. The whole crowd here out of season and up in arms. I never understood how you could bring yourselves to meddle in affairs so far beyond your grasp. You might have some shame, at least. Hold still for a second and I'll show you, Sal said. Market rules be damned. But as she stepped forward, she found that Grace stood between them. Oh, I see. Gala peered over the upper rims of her glasses, her sleepy eyes suddenly sharp. Indeed, Pavel. Quite a fine. Amply worthy of study. 
Something about the way she said study made Sal see red, and Grace's hand was no longer on her shoulder. Play nice, she told herself, at least for now. Look, she said, we've had a busy few months. We broke London in half, fought an angel, and basically ended the world. So maybe you should step off before I do something all of us regret. Pavel's face was a bad actor's impression of shock, played for the cheap seats. But before he could laze his way into a reply, Manchu interrupted. Is there a problem? He stood there with Liam and Asante and Francis, and he hadn't sounded angry when he spoke. Liam looked bored even, but he had his silver knuckles on. Hardly, Pavel said, just catching up. But I am cold and in dire need of schnapps, and as our host doesn't seem eager to explain herself, perhaps we could adjourn for now. Take, what would you call it, a rain check? Ta. Ingrid smirked. Gala just watched Grace dreamy and withdrawn as they sailed off. The laws of nature still held some sway, even in this ebbing world, since the heat of Sal's gaze wasn't enough to make their retreating backs catch fire. While Sal was distracted, the wolf guys and gals had gone. Sal felt Grace's hand tremble, though Grace herself seemed still. That was dumb, Grace said, but uh, thank you. There was nothing dismissive in that voice, no bravado. Sal felt the directness of it, like her touch the night before. And as then, she pulled away. It was dumb, wasn't it? Grace laughed once and harshly. Come on, Sal said, let's get back to the hotel. As she led them through the milling crowd, Liam shouldered up to her. Sal? He kept his voice low. Yeah? Well, your business is your own, but uh, one friend to another. Grace likes you, and you should really stop being a dick about it. A raven woke Asante that night with a tap on her window. Half dreaming, she reviewed the small room, empty, save for Frances, curled around herself in the other bed. The raven sat on the window sill, its bulk pressed against the glass, its eye unblinking. She sat up in bed and held still in the seeping cold of early morning, in the silence of small towns in parts of Europe where the forests had been long since hunted clean. The raven did not move. It knew that Asante knew that it had not come by accident. Her legs creaked as she dressed herself. A nod had worked its way behind her shoulder. Too long sitting down, perhaps, or too long standing, or too long running. Too long, too far from her family, in beds her body did not know. When you were young, you thought you wanted adventures, even though all the adventures you had found so far were merely mistakes, dressed up in formal clothes and given a kinder name. When you got old, you had real adventures and realized how easily they could break you. She left without waking Francis or the others. When she stepped out into the chill, coat pulled close, a scarf wound across her face. The raven launched itself from her window and flew north above the cobbled streets. She did not need to look to know where it was taking her. 
She appreciated the accommodating impulse it represented and how rare such an impulse was in its mistress's mind and heart. So she followed, though she could have found her way blindfolded by feel through an unfamiliar maze to the woman who had sent for her. The matress waited on the ramparts. A storm rolled through the mountain passes, breathing thunder and flourishing cloud. Lightning lit the matress in shadows without softness, and in the dark that followed, her skin seemed to glow. Torchlight sank into the folds of her gown as if into an ocean. She held a goblet. Her other hand was bare and heavy with rings. The raven flew to her, and the matress stroked its head once. The soft gold glow in its eyes faded back into her rings. The bird, still silent, flew away. Asante had seen this woman in so many guises, some forbidding, some less so. She cloaked her power when she wished or presented slivers of herself to different observers. But even naked, even in ecstasy, in pain, each piece suggested the whole. She did not have to wear the mask of a queen to rule, but she wore it now which told Asante much. Maitress, she said and bowed. The maitress turned from the rampart, and this time her smile was small and sad. Archivist? Not anymore, I'm afraid. I'm between archives. You're an archive in yourself, Asante. All those cardinals and priests at the Vatican knew that. Or else why would they struggle so to jest and hood you? You are more to the world away from Rome than to all those dusty books locked up in it. One ring glinted in a way that had nothing to do with the torches, and Asante's eyes fell on another goblet, twin to the one the maitress held, which had not existed before. She drank. The wine was warm and sweet and heavy with spice. You remembered? We held the market in the far north that year. You were young. Brilliant, hungry, and very cold. The wine, at least, could warm you. You copied titles from my library while you thought I was not looking, and borrowed a slim folio of maps you thought I would not miss. I returned it, Asante said, making the show of defense, even as the maitress made her show of attack. I played fair. Come now. The maitress raised her goblet and touched it to Asante's. Neither of us ever plays fair. We haven't the knack. The second sip tasted better than the first. She thought of kings of death and queens, and remembered that one should not eat or drink in hell. But this was not hell yet. You were everything I wanted, or so it seemed. Or you had everything I wanted. I was young and confused. Asante set down the cup. But even then, you were a bit of a coward. Really? This time the curve of the lips was genuine, and there was a flash of true amusement in the cold, deep eyes. Asante had always felt a thrill of triumph when she could invoke that spark. That's the approach you mean to take with me. You called them, but you did not greet them. Your letter did not hint why we've been summoned. And now you sent for me in particular, in secret, and I find you wearing all your instruments of power, ready to rehearse old stories. If you want to relive our youths, I'll relive them with you. But I don't think that's why I'm here. The maitress's sigh merged with the thunder. 
What is it, maîtresse? The maîtresse drank the wine, all of it, set aside the goblet, and leaned forward onto the battlements. In that lean, Asante saw for the first time a woman as old as she, older. The maîtresse had done many faces for her, many ages, many guises, but she had never before looked quite so worn. Asante wanted to hug her, then almost did. But the maîtresse sighed, and in that sigh, she seemed to breathe her weakness out. She straightened, resolute, and the chance for an embrace was gone. The world is ending, Asante. I know. Of course you do. She nodded as if that made everything easier. To end is to change. That's all an ending is. The world changes around us, and we find ourselves upon a precipice that once seemed solid ground. I find myself, that is, on a precipice. And the other side, if there is another side, stands at a distance no leap could clear. And at the bottom, if there is a bottom, lies a fate I cannot guess. I must change. We must all change together. That's why I called you here. Those who love me, those who hate me, we need each other now. I need help, I need you. I'll do it, Asante said. Again, that spark in her eye, and again, that smile. There was a time when Asante would have strangled a man to see it. She might have almost considered defacing a book. You don't know what I'm asking. I don't have to. It's yours. Sal, awake, saw the raven lead Asante away and felt better. At least she wasn't the only one not sleeping. Then she thought about where the raven was leading Asante and why, and why she'd gone and what she might hope to find within the maîtresse's castle. The cut on her cheek hurt when she touched the bandage, but only like a cut cheek hurt. And the puncture wounds on her arm ached when she touched them, but only in the way wounds ached when healing. She was afraid. She got up, anyway, and dressed in the robe from the hotel closet. She cinched the belt at her waist. When she stepped out into the hall, she paused, then locked the door behind her. Floorboards creaked. She guided herself with one hand on the rough wallpaper. Her heart had gone wandering. It lived in her throat, her fingertips, her stomach. Everywhere but where it should stay. She found the door she sought. Streetlights through the hall window reflected off the walls and gave her light enough to see, but she still traced the number on the door by touch. She decided to go back to bed. That would be easier. So she knocked once and waited and felt teenage nervous. Worse, felt scared like she'd felt as her ponytail turned to salt. That was magic. Things turned into other things and did not turn back. The door opened, and Grace stood there in a nightgown, her hair up for sleep. At first, she looked all cobwebs and blear, then raw and scared, then guarded again, closed off save for the skin just around her eyes, a stillness that betrayed her. I, Sal started, but Grace held her finger to her lips and stepped in, away, leaving an opening. Sal followed her inside and swung the door not quite shut behind I couldn't sleep, Grace said. I hate this. I don't know how you do it. 
It's such a waste of time when you have to sleep, but you can't. I'm sorry. Grace stopped talking and crossed her arms and waited. It wasn't fair, Sal said. Before, I haven't been fair to you for a while now. You were right. This is all so much bigger than it used to be. Maybe it was always this big, but I could tell myself that there were other teams that if we fucked up, maybe some people would die and a city or two would fall, but the world, the big green world out there, would be fine. But it won't. It never was fine, but it sure as hell won't be anymore. I'm so small, and I almost died yesterday, and for all I know, I'll die tomorrow. I feel people turning to me more than they used to, so if I fuck up, maybe I kill all of you, too, and I still feel like I barely know what direction's up. I don't read Aramaic, and I can't fistfight a demon or hack a bank or put someone back together when they break. Last night when you came to me, it felt wrong because I just needed something so physical that it wouldn't be about you or us, just me. Then today, when you thanked me, I got scared you might lean on me and I would let you down. But I've kept this inside and it's killing me. And I've kept other stuff inside, too. I never should have thought I had to go through all this alone. And sure, I know this is very sexy, isn't it? Me coming to your room in the middle of the night to apologize and explain why I'm such a mess. So, Grace hadn't said anything. Christ, why hadn't she said anything? What would Sal think of Sal if she'd stood in her own room hearing all this from someone else? I should go, I guess. But she didn't turn around. Sal Brooks. Grace was out of reach, but somehow Sal felt her heat from where she stood. Sal tried to keep her eyes on Grace's eyes. Grace would have made one hell of a poker player. Do you mean to tell me you care whether I think you're sexy? On Sal's best night of office poker, she'd only lost a hundred bucks. Um, yeah? You're scared, she said, because you're smart. But for someone who's so smart, you can be pretty dense. I think you're great and very sexy, especially in that bathroom. I don't want to be scared. And I don't want to be scared alone. Sal couldn't keep her own voice level. She couldn't keep her voice at all. She was almost whispering now. I want to be with you. Close the door. Sal closed it. Grace moved toward her. Sal smelled Grace's hair and her skin beneath, and she had never been quite good enough a girl to name the scents. There was sandalwood, and there was something floral, and the rest was her. Grace hooked her finger through the knot of Sal's robe and pulled, and the knot slipped open. Her hand climbed Sal's chest and slid onto her shoulder, and the robe slipped off, and she drew Sal naked toward her and down to her lips. Their touch and the flick of her tongue untied another knot, invisible, that had bound Sal's arms to her side, her legs together, and as that knot parted, her arms circled Grace and pulled her close and lifted and Grace did something with her weight, and they spun around, and Sal struck the wall with Grace's arms against her arms and her leg between her legs. And she sank into a deeper kiss. Five. 
The next morning, Asante filed into the maitress's keep with the others, wolfmen and tattooed women, aristocrats and cultists, humans and mostly humans, the full gathering of the market and the group she still couldn't help thinking of as Team 3. She had a headache and felt unsteady on her feet, but then you could not always choose how you began the future. The maitress had offered few specifics, but then Asante hadn't pushed her. The wine helped, and the company, and the approaching storm. The rest of the group looked rested. Manchu grave, Liam suspicious, Francis already in eager conversation with an elderly man with cat's eyes. Grace and Sal stood closer together, not quite holding hands, but the way they stood, always aware of each other, told Asante the world had changed in more than one way last night. Or would, soon. Good for them. They both needed some comfort and joy, Sal especially. Liam didn't know yet, or Arturo, of course, but there would be time. The keep walls rose around them. With the low mutter of an audience in an expensive theater, the crowd dispersed and arranged themselves in a loose semicircle, keeping their distance, all eyes on the empty dais. And then, as one and without warning, the voices stilled. A door opened in the wall, and the maitress emerged. She marched forth, pace-measured, eyes burning. Her train whispered like a river over stone. She'd drawn her full aspect about herself for this, and she looked glorious. The assembled magical powers of three continents faltered and fell silent, and where her gaze swept them, they fell still. One of the wolf brothers knelt. She reached the edge of the dais. Wind stilled. The courtyard smelled of mingled perfumes and musks and of stone drying from last night's rain. I have called you here, the maitress began. Mages and book burners, diabolists and harrow spices, scholars and warriors, because no other force could gather you. You stand under my truce, and the world needs you. For centuries after centuries, we followed the rise and fall of magic. We took shelter or blossomed as conditions changed. We hoarded our knowledge and resources because the more we had, the more we could use to defend ourselves and work our will. But that road leads nowhere. We cannot walk it anymore. This change is different. Magic now does not flow in like the tide, only to flow out again. The world will sink beneath this flood. Worms have eaten the foundations on which we rest, and we cannot clutch our wealth and secrets and hope the foundation will rebuild itself. Too long have we been idle players on our stage. Too long have we sought small advantage while we watched the wings from the corners of our eyes, awaiting the next hero or villain whose entrance would shape our scenes. There are no heroes, or else we are all heroes and all waiting. No one is coming for us. We are all there is. And even if we work together, even if we share the burden as we have never shared it before, we may still fail. The world we save may no longer be the world we know. But if we do not take that chance, there is no hope for us. She let that silence stretch, and the assembled magic of three continents leaned in to listen. Asante felt a thrill of pride for her friend, for her deeds, and for the fact that she, only she, could pull this web together, could make so terrifying a case in so few words, and know they would listen. Perhaps because they trusted her. Perhaps because they respected her. Perhaps because they feared her. The why did not matter. 
Had the matress known this day would come? Was this why, uncountable years before, she'd built the market? Because she knew that someday this misfit army would need a binding force, a common keystone? Maybe she planned all this centuries in advance. Or maybe she just realized what she had to do and did it. Here, the matress said, is my plan. It should have ended then. Asante would have thought that was a perfect ending for the whole story. Any half-trained reader could work out for themselves how this gang, come together, could go about shouldering the burden of the world. The maitress knew how, and the rest of them had the brawn and skill. That would be a perfect ending. Save only that it was perhaps too pat. And the maitress had said it herself. Every ending was a change. She opened her mouth to tell them what would come next, how they would save the world or change it. Before she could speak, there was a crack of thunder. The air above the dais tore. Shadow rolled from that gap in space to fill the courtyard with impenetrable darkness and the weight of seas. Asante could not move. She could not breathe. Screams of pain and fear, roaring wrath, all came to her muffled beneath that unbearable weight. She staggered toward the dais, knees creaking, shoulders sagging. Another pulse of silent thunder followed, and a third. A wave of searing heat that forced her to screw her eyes tight shut, a chill in her bones. Time broke like it did beneath electric shock. The mind scattered. She fell. They were all falling. There was nothing left of them anymore but the fall and the sure prospect of a short, sharp stop at the end. She cannot remember how sun felt on her skin or how air tasted without sulfur. And still Asante moved. She thrust past others curled and immobile beneath the dark and gathered foul breath to cry a warning or a spell. The shadow passed. The matress lay dead upon the dais. A sword of silver already tarnished black pierced through her robes into her chest and out the other side into the stone beneath. And standing over her on the dais, his jacket smoking, his hands crimson with her blood, his face twisted into a parody of a smile, was a man Asante had not seen since she'd cast him into the demon realm in a pitched battle for the treasures of the Knights of St. John. He rested on the world like a razor blade on a balloon. He looked unright, suffused in pink, his angles flexing through alien geometry. His eyes were hollow pits, and when his face moved, his skin cracked and bled. The thing that had been Alexander Norse said, Hi. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>